0: The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org.
1: As we continue in our joy series, you know, I've been um, trying to do some research, not just in a biblical perspective, but also um, just get a feel and a sense for how the world kind of defines joy and understands joy and how we um, not just pursue it, but obtain it. And so about a month ago, I was putting together this uh, current, current sermon series. Um, I sat down with my family, and we watched this film called The Pursuit of Happiness. Has Anyone seen this movie? So it was released about 10 years ago, 2006, and it stars uh, Will Smith with his son, Jaden Smith. And I wanted to watch it not just because I heard it was a solid, feel good movie, um, but I wanted to see how the world, or at least you know, our popular American culture, tells a story of someone who is desperately searching for happiness and how they ultimately find it. And so this film is based on this, this true story about a man named Chris Gardner. And he's a guy that's trying to make ends meet by selling medical equipment. And he's really struggling. And over time, the financial stress in his life gets so bad that his wife ends up leaving him and he's left to raise his young son alone and they end up becoming homeless. And the movie takes us through all the ups and downs of his life, from having his wages garnished by the IRS, uh, he gets evicted from his apartment, he's jailed for 10 days for not paying uh, parking tickets that are due, And he's sleeping on the floor of public restrooms with his son. He just can't catch a break. And throughout the movie, you're just kind of rooting for this guy um, to make it. But it's just one disappointment after another. And he's so desperate to find a better life for he and his son. And he takes on this unpaid internship at this financial institution, Dean Witter, if you remember them. And he rea- Because he realizes that stockbrokers, they, they actually make really good money. And he's got just a few months to kind of prove himself, and he's competing for this one job, this one full-time job that 20 or so other interns are competing for. And after working tirelessly throughout the whole movie, uh, the film closes with this one last scene I want to show you. So powerful, isn't it? Just the way that this film can capture the raw emotion of, of pure joy. But, you know, to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical of this Hollywood ending, you know, which basically says that he broke the cycle of poverty, and because of that, he, he found happiness. And so I did a little bit of research on what became of Chris Gardner's life after this moment, and I found out that after getting that job in the early 80s and working a few years as a successful stockbroker, he went on to actually start his own uh, Stockbroking firm, brokerage firm, which also became wildly successful. And he ended up telling his story in the form of a memoir, which inspired this film and, and actually made him famous. And shortly after the film, in 2006, he made millions when he sold his share of the company that he founded. And it made him incredibly wealthy. And yet, I want you to listen to this. In 2012, six years after the film was released, I learned just from doing some research that while his wife was dying of cancer, she actually challenged him to find true happiness and find ful- fulfillment in the remainder of his life. And I-, I found that so amazing because this guy had achieved everything in the world that you would think would bring him happiness. He had money. He had power. He ran his own firm. He had fame, everyone knew who he was. He even had a movie made about him pursuing and finding happiness. And yet, six years after all this, the person that was closest to him could see that he still was desperately unhappy. And her dying wish was that he would go out and find the happiness that he was looking for. After three decades of working in the financial world, Chris Gardner, he walked away from all of it. And as a self-proclaimed Christian, he said in one interview that his his faith is one of the strongest guiding forces in his life. And he went on to redefine himself as a philanthropist and a motivational speaker. And he now travels over 200 days a year, has dedicated his life to serving and helping others. He sponsors a number of charities, which he funds, all kinds of initiatives uh, where he puts his money into just helping the poor and homeless especially and getting them back on their feet again. And this was his roots. So the movie doesn't really tell the whole story. You know, he, didn't, he didn't find happiness when he got a good job or even when he discovered power, money, or fame. All of those things still left him feeling empty inside. Instead, he only found joy, joy when he chose to dedicate his life to the service of others. He found it in loving others. Chris Gardner's story reveals something about what, something that's true, I think, about the human heart. That we struggle to find joy because we seek it only for ourselves. You know, last week we discovered that the first step to finding God's joy is in abiding in God's love. And we defined abiding in His love as dying to ourselves by fully depending on Him. By surrendering to his will, and by committing ourselves to an intimate union, right, a oneness with him. That is the first and that is the most important step to discovering the joy of the Lord. But it, it doesn't just end there. To experience the fullness of God's joy, we have to go one step further. We must love one another because the proof of God's love in our lives It's not just found in his his love for us. It is found in his love in us, overflowing to others. It's only when this happens can we begin to fully experience God's joy in our lives. It's only when this happens that our joy can be made complete. So this morning we're going to be reading again from John 15, beginning in verse 8. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me on the screen here. It says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we confess that we often seek joy apart from you. But we know that your heart is for us to experience your joy and you've given us your word and your spirit so that we might find our joy in you. Draw us to yourself. Open our minds and our hearts so that we might see the truth of your word and discover the fullness of your of your joy in our lives, we pray. Amen. You know, there, there are a lot of 12-step programs out there that promise a recovery from this or success in that. But when we look into Jesus' instructions in John 15, I believe he, he really defines our path to his joy in two simple steps. And while it's simple in the number of steps, I don't think it's all that simple to understand And I don't think it's really all that simple to practice either. In fact, I think it's impossible. It's impossible to understand. It's impossible to actually do without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the first part of our text here in John 15 addresses the sign of a true disciple of Jesus. He says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The mark that you truly belong to Jesus is found in the fruit that you bear. And when you are connected to Him like a branch to the vine, the most natural thing for you to do is to bear fruit. And the second proof or evidence that you are truly connected to Christ is that you keep His commands. It says in verse 10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, this word commands or commandments, it shows up repeatedly in this section that we just read. And much like the word abide showed up 11 times in our passage last week. And, you know, in today's day and age, I think there's this negative connotation that comes with the word commands or commandments, especially in the context of religion. And so I want to unpack this a bit because I think it's easy to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. You know, at first reading, this text can seem like it's saying that when we obey his commands, that God will love us more. But that's that's just not true. We know that God's love is not a conditional type of love, where we earn his favor based on our obedience to him. But I believe there's a cyclical relationship between abiding in God and in obeying his commands. And what I mean by that is that the more we obey his commands the more we grow in our understanding of his love for us. And the more that we grow in our understanding of his love for us, the more that we desire to obey his commands. And this is why the psalmist can say, Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. It's not because the psalmist is a legalist. But it's because within the law of God, he sees the heart of God. So we're told that when we obey his commands, we abide in his love. And when we abide in his love, his will and his desire becomes our will and our desires. This is the place of true abiding. When his will is our will, and that's demonstrated through our obedience to him. And, and our will is also his will, and that's demonstrated through answered prayers. You can't just have one part be true, right? His will cannot become our will without our will becoming his will. And it's like this. When you think about the simple math equation, one plus two equals three. And two plus one also equals three. They're both true. And they're both the same equation, but they're just expressed in different ways. And the starting point is different. And this is why Jesus says, when we are in this type of intimate union, with God, all of our prayers are answered because they are already aligned with his desires, God's will for us. So if I were to diagram what Christ is calling to us to here, I think it's, it looks something like this. He calls us to abide in his love. And in that abiding, we keep his commands. And in, that, in the keeping of his commands, we begin to bear fruit. We begin to understand his love and grow in his love and express his love. And in that, we begin to find his joy, the fullness of his joy in our lives. Each one of these steps feeds upon the other. And so I think it becomes clear that when we speak of obeying God's command, this is an essential step in finding God's joy. So the question is, what what are these commandments exactly? What is Christ calling us to keep? How do we discover the fullness of his joy by keeping his commands? You know, when you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus consistently distills the Ten Commandments down to two simple imperatives. He says, love God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what we find again here in John chapter 15 or John chapter 15. He's telling his disciples in his last days. In verse 9, he tells us what we are to receive first, his love. And he's telling what us what we are to do with that love? We're to reciprocate that love to others. And this is the second commandment as it's found in verse 12 that we love one another. We love one another. But now to his disciples, they're not just commands. Jesus explains to his disciples in his last moments that they're actually the keys to his joy. You know, I think it's easy for someone who does not know God or understand the heart of God to look at his commands to love him first and to think, well, you know, the Christian God is an egotistical deity. This God demands that we love him. Because he's so insecure. This is often the criticism that is given by the new atheists today, like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. But if you stop and you think about this for a moment, if it is true that ultimate joy can only be found in an intimate relationship with God, then his command for us to love him is not an undue burden, it's an undeserved grace. Do you understand? God in his grace is giving us a path to all true joy and it runs through him. And on that same token, if it is true that the fullness of God's joy can only be found in loving one another, then his command for us to love one another, it's not an undue burden. It's an undeserved grace. We need to see God's commands in this way, not as something that is keeping us from discovering true joy in life, but as a path to finding it. And this was the struggle from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. You know, God's command to Adam and Eve was that they not eat of the fruit from one single tree, but they disobeyed. Why? Because they thought God was withholding a greater happiness from them They thought they could find joy apart from God. And we all know how that turned out. But God calls us to love him by abiding in him. And God calls us to love others by serving them. And by faith, when we do these things, we're told we discover his joy. And Jesus takes it one step further and he says, this is not just a command, this is a sign, this is a litmus test of whether you are truly a follower of me or not. Because if my love is in you, it will be so great that when you receive it, it will overwhelm you and overflow to those around you. You know, if this is true, then joy is not just a matter of perspective or attitude, right? You know, the world says that joy is determined by me. It's all just a matter of perspective, right? And it's like looking at this glass. Is it half full or is it half empty, right? But in God's economy, it's not about our perspective. Something actually fundamentally changes. Your God comes and he pours his love into our hearts. And he pours it until we're full. And he pours it to overflowing. Right? This is the love of God. This is the love that he desires us to experience, and to have. And in the same way that our love overflows, In our union with him, our joy also becomes, his joy becomes ours as well. This is what it means when Jesus says, my joy is in you and your joy may be full. This is the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That you're filled with him and that you're filled to overflowing. You notice that Christ's command is not just that we love one another, but to love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. The promise of receiving God's joy is only found in receiving God's love and reciprocating that same love back to Him and to others. Not our version of a lesser love, but His love. And you know, I think it's easy to preach a message on love and to sit and hear a message on love and just leave it at that because we can make the word love you know, just vague enough to keep it kind of at a safe distance, right? It doesn't really cost us anything if we just speak in broad, vague terms. But Jesus doesn't give us that freedom. He doesn't give us that kind of wiggle room when he calls us to love. He went out of his way to give us a very specific examples of what his love should look like like in one of his followers. And he did it by literally showing us himself. And so I want to unpack a bit how the love that God calls us to show for one another is unique from the love of this world. And so how we might allow his love to usher in his joy. I think the first thing that we learn about the love of Christ that we are called to emulate and to share with one another is loving one another means putting others above yourself. This is the love of Christ. Loving as Christ loved means loving humbly. You know, in his last moments with his beloved disciples, before Jesus commands them to love one another, we learn that moments earlier in John chapter 13, he demonstrates his own love for them in a very tangible way. By making himself a servant and washing their feet. When he had washed their feet, it says in John 13, verse 12, And put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. You may recall the surprise in the room among the disciples and even the indignation of Peter. You know, he refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. They were all shocked that Jesus would stoop down to this kind of level. You know, this was a time when roads were some of the dirtiest places on earth. They were not clean, they weren't swept. Animals would relieve themselves as they traveled down these roads, and so. Washing the exposed feet of someone who walked these roads was considered one of the most humiliating tasks that was given to the lowest of servants. You know, back in 2008, when President Bush was visiting the Middle East, there was an Iraqi journalist who threw his shoes at him during the pr- a press conference. You you might recall it. It was uh, got a lot of uh, media coverage. And it made me think that even to this day in the Middle East, though it's more of a symbolic gesture now, the shoes and the feet are considered the dirtiest part of a person. And there's no greater humiliation, no greater insult, than having a shoe thrown at you, right? At least in this culture. But Jesus would not let his pride or his culture determine how he would love them. Jesus was going to show them that his love required putting others above himself. You know, I saw a t-shirt a while back that had a very simple graphic that looked like this. I didn't really get it at first glance, but then I realized it was actually just visually saying something that was very profound, that we should see others in our lives as above ourselves. This is the kind of love that we are called to. And this is the secret to finding joy as well. And it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? How can I find happiness when I'm not seeking it directly for myself? And yet Christ says, walk in my love, and you will discover my joy. Put others above yourself, and my joy will rise above your sorrows. Just before I began preaching this series on joy, I received a little package of encouragement from someone in the church. And uh, it was a little note that said, J-O-Y in the form of this acronym, and it was listed vertically in this way. So said, Jesus, J, others, the O, and Y is yourself. In that order. And, you know, I was tempted to put this slide up in the beginning of the sermon and just have all of us just stare at it for 30 minutes <laughs> and let that be today's message because I think it sums up everything that I'm trying to say this morning. The only way that we can discover God's joy is when we put things in that order. Jesus, others, yourself. If you try to put it in any other order, it won't spell joy, will it? You know, sometimes my wife, uh, Kim, she'll send me articles that she finds interesting on Facebook, and yesterday morning she forwarded me one that was entitled The Best Marriage Advice from a Divorced Man the writer, Gerald Rogers, he's reflecting upon a marriage of 16 years. We've actually been married for 16 years as well. And this marriage recently ended in divorce. And he shares in this article about all the things he would have done differently after 16 years of marriage. And in the opening paragraph of this article, it struck me because I think it captures the kind of love that God asks of us so that We might not rob ourselves of the joy that he desires for us. And he says this, If we make the conscious decision to daily place our spouse's desires and needs above our own, and that's reciprocated, the marriage will succeed. Utter and complete selflessness. Isn't this true in all healthy relationships? You know, I don't know Gerald Rogers. I could be wrong, but I don't think he's a Christian. And yet, his insight into selfless love, I think, is very biblical. It's interesting that he says this kind of selflessness is the mark of all healthy relationships, not just the marriage one. And he had learned the hard way that a selfless love, a love that puts others above self, is the most rewarding kind of love. It's the love of Christ. And it's the same love that Jesus wants us to receive from him and the same love that he wants us to reflect to others. It's in that love that we discover his joy. Loving one another with his love means putting others above self. Two, loving one another means giving without expecting anything in return. In other words, loving as Christ loved means loving sacrificially. In verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. God's love for us is unconditional, and so our love for others should also be the same. It should be given freely, without conditions, without expectations, without receiving anything in return. And this is very different from the way that the world understands and the world uses love, right? The world says, if I do something for you, I expect something in return. But that's not God's love. That's just business, isn't it? That's just a human transaction. Everybody and anybody can operate on this level. But how do you ever find joy when you give love in that kind of way? You can't. Because you're always expecting something in return. You're always keeping a ledger in your mind of what you owe someone or what someone owes you. And so you're either disappointed because you didn't get enough in return or you're anxious because you feel you need to give more to compensate for your own shortfall. But when I do something for you just out of my love for Christ with no expectation of receiving anything in return, I believe what we get back does not come from the other person. It comes back from God. We receive God's pleasure We receive God's reward. We receive God's blessing, God's anointing in our lives. And this is the mark of a true disciple in Christ. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What is that fruit that proves that they are followers of Jesus? What is the sign that someone is his true disciple? Well, he's already told us them. Immediately after he washes his disciples' feet, two chapters earlier, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The greatest proof that you are a follower of Jesus is not found in how much you love God, it's found in how much you love others out of the love that God has poured into your life. You know, this type of selfless and sacrificial love was one of the hallmarks of the early church. And if you study even secular accounts of world history, you'll find that much of the growth in the early church, and even through the Middle Ages happened through these dark periods when millions of people were literally being wiped out by these massive diseases like the bubonic plague or black death where entire cities would flee overnight just in utter fear, leaving behind the weak and the elderly and even children. But we learned that the Christians actually were the ones who willingly chose, even at the cost of their own lives, to stay behind, to care for those who were left behind, to nurse the ill, to bury the dead. And in this selfless act of love, they were bearing witness to the world, who they belonged to. The kind of selfless and sacrificial love they practiced was the love of Jesus. And just as Jesus had said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, when our willingness to love is dictated by this kind of quid pro quo, right? This, this for that. Give only when you get. If our love is defined by that, we will never, ever find joy. And this is certainly not the kind of radical love that Jesus offered us, nor is it the radical love that he's called us to. If the way we have love for one another is no different from the world, how are we any different from the world? How is our community any different from the community that you can find anywhere else. But how is our love any different from the world? I mean, if our love is not a sacrificial, selfless type of love. So loving one another means giving without expecting anything in return. And lastly, loving one another means seeking the growth of the other, the good of the other, and not just your own. In other words, loving as Christ loves means desiring to see more of Jesus in their lives. You know, I find it interesting that when John concludes his gospel, we find the disciples are gathered again, but this time it's not in the upper room. It's on a beach by the Sea of Tiberias. And now the resurrected Jesus, he's preparing breakfast for them. And there's this really awkward moment with Peter, right? Peter has failed him miserably. He's betrayed him. And Jesus asks Peter this very uncomfortable question. He says, do you love me? Peter says, of course, you you know I love you, Jesus. Jesus says, feed my sheep. And if that wasn't awkward enough, Jesus does this again and again. Three times he asks Peter the same question. Do you love me? And his answer is always the same. Then feed my sheep. Jesus did not want Peter to now prove his love for him by performing this grand act of love or by passing a test of loyalty. Jesus wanted the proof of Peter's love for him to come in the form of loving and caring for others. To come through the feeding and caring of Jesus' own the greatest proof that we love God is found in how we love others. And why does God call us to do it in this way? I believe when we truly learn how to love and serve others sacrificially, we are actually pressing in to the very heart of God, a God who so loves his children that he died for them. And wherever we find God's heart, we discover God's joy. The Apostle Paul In his letter to the Philippians, he says something interesting in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. He asks the church in Philippi to complete his joy. And in the Greek, these are the exact same words that Jesus uses when he says that your joy may be full. But what's fascinating is how Paul describes how this church can bring his joy to fullness. And he says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind with Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So remarkable. Paul's great desire for these young believers in Philippi was that they abide in Christ and that they might share in the same mind, the same love, in full accord and of one mind. And in that union with Christ, that they might serve one another by putting the others above themselves. And he says, this is what would complete my joy, is to see this happening in your life. Paul's joy did not just come from his relationship with God. His joy came from seeing others grow in their relationship with God. His joy wasn't complete until others entered into that same kind of union that he enjoyed with the Lord. And it's this kind of selfless, humble, other-centered love is what we see on the cross. This is why the writer of Hebrews could say of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus didn't offer up his life because he was seeking his own joy. He saw in the future our joy and the Father's joy. And this is what gave him the strength to persevere, to lay down his life, literally die to himself, and endure the cross. The path to God's joy is not found in seeking it for ourselves. It's found in seeking it for others. This is both the heart and the happiness of Christ. You know, if you have experienced the love of God, then you are required to love others in the same way that God has loved you. It's really that simple. There are no exceptions. And if you don't feel the joy of the Lord in your life, then perhaps it's not because something is between you and God. Maybe it's because there's something between you and another brother or another sister in Christ that you simply refuse to love, refuse to forgive, refuse to serve or care for. You know, last week when Hurricane Harvey hit the Houston area, I was watching some of the local news reports that were coming out of that region and I came across this one interview that really moved me. And you know, apparently there were a few men who saw what was happening from their homes in Kentucky and they felt compelled by the love of God to go and, and just love on their fellow man. And um, they did this by bringing their boat down and just serving people who were stranded, flooded, just however they could. And as you watch this this short video, I, I want you to think about who you think was more blessed. Those this man helped or this man who helped others?
0: We are on a boat on Strathford Lane in a neighborhood in Kingwood. Uh, We are one of many boats that are out here searching these neighborhoods, trying to see if there's anybody still inside. If you want to take a look at uh, just how high the water level is uh, in this area, TEXAS TASK FORCE ONE WAS OUT AT THE the CHECKPOINT, uh, AS WELL AS HPD, KINGWOOD POLICE, THEY'RE OUT HERE uh, MONITORING BOATS AS THEY COME IN AND OUT OF THE WATER. Um, JUST ABOUT AN HOUR AGO, THEY STOPPED LETTING IN SMALLER BOATS BECAUSE THIS CURRENT IS CONTINUING TO GET STRONGER AND THE WATER IS CONTINUING TO RISE. WE ACTUALLY MET THESE GENTLEMEN ON THE ROAD. WE WERE DRIVING, uh, TRYING TO GET TO THIS AREA, um, AND WE MET THEM AT A STOPLIGHT. WE SAW THEM PULLING A BOAT AND uh, DECIDED TO HOOK UP WITH THEM. THEY they CAME ALL THE WAY FROM because they saw the need here in the Houston area because of Hurricane Harvey. They wanted to be here and they wanted to help. So, so John, tell me tell me why, uh, what played into your decision to, to come here?
2: Well, I, I watched it on TV and I thought, there's got to be something I can do, you know. Uh, I laid down and I tried to sleep and I had a burden on my heart and I feel like God was telling me I need to come help. So I drove 18 hours, came down here and jumped in the water and been looking ever since, trying to help somebody, you know? We just come from a time in Kentucky where people used to love people and use things, and seems like the world's graduation, graduated to using people and loving things, you know? And uh, there's a lot of good people down here at i met, though, I mean, I feel right at home down here. I miss my family, but I feel right at home. And
0: and, yeah. and where have you been in, in, in the last few days? Where What have you seen while, while in Houston?
2: Well, if I told you, I'd lie because I don't really know where I was at. I just know I put in water, and I put in water, and I I got some people out of the creek that was in their car flooded. Well, we just put in over on by I-45. Anywhere that they would let us get in, we got in. And believe me, it's hard to get in, but there's reasons for some of it. I mean, the current's strong, and thank God we brought a bass boat with something to push us around, but... uh, some of these little boats are struggling with the current and they're having to rescue the rescuers you know so uh, that's why they're kind of cautious i guess but i'm just thankful that god can use me to do a little bit of something for somebody and uh, glad to meet you and glad to know y'all
0: all right well and you're actually a pastor too you mentioned that
2: well i actually at this time i don't pastor i'm just an evangelist but i think pastoring, you have to have a heart for it but i love people but i just not so much the social gathering of church, but uh, I love evangelizing. And I love God, and uh, met up with my brother Danny here, and uh, great man of God. And uh, God just brought our past together, and uh, I just thank God for everything. There's people that fed us in Houston. We were going down the road from a rescue, and these people flagged us down and they said, we're, "We can't do anything else, but we're barbecuing for all the rescue." Yeah. We stopped and them. People fed us. We felt like we was at home. Awesome. I mean, and we were hungry. I mean, there's no place open to get nothing to eat. And uh, them people fed I us. Just, I just wanted to cry, man. I've never seen so much love in a place in my life as I've seen here. And uh, I just thank God for the opportunity to do something for me.
1: I'm from Missouri, so I understood everything he said. <laughs> I don't know if you needed subtitles, but... You know, I think this interview had all the elements of Jesus' joy and Jesus' love. You know, this, this pastor or this guy, John, he, he put others above himself. He drove 18 hours, brought his boat just to serve others. And you know, he said, we come from a time in Kentucky where we used to love people and use things. But it seems we've graduated to where we use people and love things. But he knew others above self. And he gave without expecting anything in return, Right? You could just see, like, just the tears in his eyes. He was so moved when when people pulled him up and just wanted to feed him. And he sought that they would know and that they would grow in Jesus. You know, he says, I'm not a pastor now. I'm just an evangelist. I want to show the love of Christ just by the way that I'm going to love on them with the love of Christ. And did you notice how thankful he was for the opportunity to serve others? Did you notice the joy that brought into tears this is the kind of love for one another that god calls us to this is when we discover the fullness of his joy when we love one another humbly sacrificially when we desire to see more of jesus in their lives when we love one another as jesus loves us let's bow our heads together